Welcome to More Than Medicine, where Jesus is more than enough for the ills that plague our culture and our country. Hosted by author and physician, Dr. Robert Jackson, and his wife, Carlotta, and daughter, Hannah Miller. So listen up, because the doctor is in. Well, do I have a treat for you. I was recently asked to address the Spartanburg Christian Action Network about COVID post-vaccine syndrome and COVID long haul. The presentation is divided into two sections. First, post-vaccine syndrome and its treatment and COVID long haul and its treatment. You will hear the first one on March the 4th and the second one on March the 11th. We address the definitions of both the diseases processes followed by epidemiology and pathogenesis followed by treatment plans. I hope you will enjoy these presentations and I hope you will share it with your friends and family. Dr. Joseph Salibi down in Charleston coined the phrase recently CLMD, which stands for COVID Literate MD, COVID Literate Medical Doctor. And I think that's very apropos for today. There are a fair number of medical doctors out there who are willfully blind to the whole issue of COVID post-vaccine syndrome and COVID long haul, which makes them complicit with the CDC, the FDA, the NIH, in all of their attempts to create medical tyranny. Then there are those physicians who are woefully ignorant. They're just woefully uninformed. And that's sad. And it's sad for you. It's sad for your friends. It's sad for my patients. But I, I would encourage you to extend a little bit of grace because even good medical doctors can be deceived. You and I have been deceived at some time in our lives, haven't we? Do your head like this. Yeah. We, we've all been deceived at some time in our lives. And even good Christian medical doctors can be deceived. The enemy of our soul, that is his specialty, right? Is deception. And there are times when you and I, and even some of our good medical Christian doctor peers, have been deceived even about COVID, post-vaccine syndrome, and COVID long haul. So my suggestion to all of us is that we need to extend a little bit of grace. And part of our responsibility is education, is teaching folks what I'm going to share with you today. Literally hundreds of patients have come to see me or call me in the last two to two and a half years because their medical doctor would not treat acute COVID, post-vaccine syndrome, or COVID long haul. Even, either because they refuse to acknowledge the existence of these conditions or would just inadequately prepared to treat the conditions. Why? Well, first of all is fearfulness. I've met and talked to dozens, if not hundreds of physicians who are just afraid. Many of the physicians in this county, if not most, are employed by a large hospital enterprise. And they're afraid of losing their positions, their jobs, their livelihood, if they buck the system. About a year and a half ago now, 
one of my best friends, he was in a discipleship group that I taught, contracted COVID. He had some comorbidities and he became very ill very quickly. Ended up in the ICU. Ended up on a ventilator. And the physicians told the family that he would probably die. And that if he did not die, he would need a lung transplant. The family went to the physicians and said, we want, it, we want him treated according to the frontline doctor's critical care COVID protocol, and we want him prescribed ivermectin. The hospital flatly refused. So they contacted a lawyer. The lawyer went to a judge. The judge said to the hospital lawyer, this is a, a right to treat state, and if the family wants ivermectin, then you have to give this patient ivermectin. The hospital replied, none of the ICU doctors in this hospital are willing to prescribe ivermectin. That was not true. They were afraid. They were afraid to prescribe ivermectin. The family said, well, we have a family doctor friend who is willing to prescribe the ivermectin. The hospital responded, well, if he does not have ICU privileges, he cannot prescribe the ivermectin. Well, for whatever reason, I was that family doctor friend. And for whatever reason, I had always signed up for ICU privileges, even though I had not treated a patient in the ICU for 20 years. So when the hospital lawyer found out that their family doctor friend still had ICU privileges, he nearly fainted. So they had to give me permission to go to the ICU every day and prescribe ivermectin to my, my friend and their family member. When I got there, as I usually do when I treat a patient, I write an order for the nurse to give the medication. The nurses came back to me and said, Dr. Jackson, we're not allowed to give this medication. I said, what are you talking about? Anytime I write an order, the nurses give the medication. They said, no, the hospital has instructed us that we cannot give the ivermectin. You're going to have to give it yourself. And I looked at them and I said, you mean I've got to come up here every morning crush these pills and push them down the NG tube myself? They said, yes, sir, you're going to have to do that. So for the next five months, I drove up to the hospital every morning, took me an hour and a half out of my schedule, crushed 30 milligrams of ivermectin, pushed it down the NG tube for my friend and their family member. Within three days, he went from being unconscious with encephalopathy and he woke up. And then over the next few months, he gradually improved to the point that he eventually was discharged from the hospital, went to rehab, spent two months in rehab, and now my friend Chris is back to work, back with his family. He's back to fishing with his friends, and he's contemplating buying the business that he used to work for. Despite all the prognostications of his ICU doctors that he would die or need a lung transplant. His pulmonologist is astounded at the improvement in his CT scan when he tries to evaluate his lungs. And I'm convinced it has a lot to do with that anti-inflammatory effect of the ivermectin. Now, why am I telling you this story? I'm telling you because the ICU doctor came to me one day and he was visibly trembling. And he said, Dr. Jackson, you've got to be the most courageous physician that I have ever met. And I said, why do you say that? He said, there's not a single nurse or doctor involved in the care of Chris Davis who's willing to do what you're doing. They're all afraid that the hospital is going to fire them 
simply for being associated with you and this patient. Nobody wants to be involved with his care because of you. They're afraid of this patient and they're afraid of you. And they're afraid of being fired from their jobs. And quite frankly, I'm astounded at your courage. And I said, I'm not courageous. I'm just doing what's right by my patient. I'm doing what I believe is the right thing that will take care of him and provide for his medical care and give him the best chance of survival. Isn't that what good doctors do? And he looked at me and he said, well, yeah, you're right. But none of us have the courage to do it. And answer to the question, why are we in this predicament? Number one is because physicians are afraid. They're fearful. And quite frankly, many of them are just cowardly. And they're afraid for their jobs and their positions more than they really care for their patients. And then number two is because they're just uninformed. They're COVID illiterate medical doctors. When I was in the ICU, I took the printout for the Frontline Doctors COVID Critical Care Alliance protocol for caring for patients in the ICU and the doctors involved with his care, it was like they'd seen the Ten Commandments for the first time. They looked at it and were astounded. They had no idea of any of the protocol that I was recommending for my friend Chris Davis. And they looked at me and said, can we have this? And I said, certainly, I'll print out another one for every one of you. And they studied, they looked at it, and they were amazed that there was a medical scientific basis for the things that I was recommending. They had no idea. They were COVID illiterate. If their only resource is the big pharma bought and paid for traditional medical journals, they will inevitably be COVID illiterate. They must resort to independent voices and the alternative media in order to become COVID literate. The current conflict is not between the vaxxers and the anti-vaxxers. It's not between COVID literate and COVID illiterate. The conflict is not between the alphabet agencies and independent medical doctors and independent thinking medical doctors. I want you to understand that the current conflict is between light and dark. It's between good and evil. The conflict is between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. Your doctor, lawyer, judge, Indian chief, your next door neighbor, and your know-it-all brother-in-law, they're just blind. They're just spiritually blind. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says the natural man. That's the biblical word for the lost man. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God because they are foolishness to him. Neither can he understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And there are a lot of folks out there who really cannot see spiritual truth because they are spiritually dead, spiritually blind, and spiritually bound. Now, don't get all puffed up and proud thinking, well, (laughs) I see, I understand, because it's only by the grace of God, brothers and sisters, that you see and that you understand. Put on your humble shirt and be thankful that God gave you eyes to see. It's only by His grace and by the work of Holy Spirit in your life. Because you see, you're not smarter. These doctors are not dumb. They're highly intelligent people. The issue is, spiritual blindness they can't see and that's why they ridicule you and me and hold us up to mock 
and scorn because they cannot see. They're spiritually blind. So what is the solution? Number one, we have to pray for spiritual revival. God brought spiritual revival in America twice before. In the 1700s and in 1860, right in the middle of the Civil War. And it's important that you and I pray for spiritual awakening in our land. Somebody prayed for me. They got down on their knees. They sacrificed their time. I'm so glad that someone prayed for me. I'm so glad that someone prayed for me. Aren't you glad somebody prayed for you? I'm so glad somebody prayed for me. Let's see, you need to be praying for your doctor and your legislator and your know-it-all brother-in-law. You know what I'm saying? This is a spiritual battle and we need to be praying for them and be thankful that somebody prayed for you. And then number two, you need to talk to them about Jesus. You need to share the Gospel. They overcame Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. It's up to you and me to share the good news of the Gospel. You share the Gospel with your doctor. And you give him... I'm not minimizing the importance of teaching people about COVID and helping people be COVID literate. But if they're blind and they cannot see, it's not going to... Only Jesus can change people's hearts. <laughs> only the Spirit of God can change people's hearts. I can't do that and you can't do that. So fundamentally, our responsibility is to share Jesus and to share our testimonies. Evangelism is our only weapon and truth is our only weapon. Can I say that again? Evangelism is our only strategy and truth is our only weapon. So now we can talk about post-vaccine syndrome. All of my information for today comes from the Frontline COVID Critical Care Alliance. So if you see anything or hear me talk about anything that you don't quite catch, it's all going to be on their website. Their website has information about acute therapy, COVID long haul, post-vaccine syndrome, and how to treat people in the ICU if you want to know how to do that. So they've got all that information there. And none of this is original to me. There are lots of other resources out there. I like their resource because it's highly researched and it's got lots of medical references to justify everything that they have on their website. 61-year-old male, not a patient, he's a personal friend, received the vaccine a little over a year ago. And within a few months, he began to experience severe palpitations so much so that they occurred every single day and began to cause him extreme anxiety. He had to go to the cardiologist about it, had to have a, a vent monitor, a Holter monitor, ended up having a heart cath. After 10 months, the cardiac uh, irritability, the arrhythmia ultimately resolved. But for 10 months, his life was miserable. He didn't have chest pain, but he did have shortness of breath. He had difficulty completing his daily task because every day he had constant sensation of irregular heart heartbeats, anxiety, and frequent panic attacks. He never had panic attacks in his entire life. And he got to the point where he would have to get up and leave restaurants, leave work meetings, leave church because the panic attacks were so severe. 
And then finally, when the arrhythmia stopped, all the anxiety went away, the panic attacks resolved. Now, where did all that come from? It was a consequence of the vaccine. There's no official definition that exists for post-COVID vaccine syndrome. There has to be a temporal correlation between receiving a COVID-19 vaccine and the beginning or worsening of a patient's clinical manifestations. And that alone is sufficient to diagnose as a COVID-19 vaccine-induced injury when the symptoms are unexplained by any other concurrent illness. A personal friend, he's a football coach, high school teacher, his father-in-law was compelled to get the COVID vaccine by his family members. The father-in-law was 79 years old, drove himself everywhere he wanted to go. He had a small farm. He drove his tractor, bush hogged his pastures, plowed his fields, went to all of his appointments and all, visited all his family, had only one medical illness, which was hypertension, took one medicine for high blood pressure. Immediately after receiving the first vaccine, he noticed a deterioration in his mental capabilities. He began to be forgetful. He began to have difficulty finding places. And he was very upset about that, but he didn't make the connection to the vaccine. His family insisted that he get the booster, which he did. And then within weeks of that second shot, his mental capabilities crashed. He could no longer drive, couldn't drive his tractor, couldn't find his directions around town, couldn't remember people's names. He had difficulty remembering his own name. In other words, he became disabled immediately after the second booster. And he knew that it was due to that booster. And he was irate. I went deer hunting with this friend of mine and I sat in the hunt club with this 79-year-old man who could no longer hunt. He could no longer drive. He could no longer operate his farm machinery. And he was irate at his children who had compelled him to get the vaccine. Because before this, six months prior, he was an active 79-year-old man. And now he was a disabled, not dementia. He had been to the neurologist and the neurologist says he does not have dementia. All of his symptoms were a consequence of the vaccine. He was suffering post-vaccine syndrome. What's the epidemiology? What's the incidence of this? First of all, the CDC, the FDA, the NIH, World Health Organization do not recognize post-COVID vaccine injuries as a specific medical condition, even though there's a specific ICD-10 code. The code is U12.9. It's recognized in Europe, but not in the United States. As of 12-2-22, there were 1,476,227 adverse events that have been reported to open VAERS as a consequence of the COVID vaccine. 36,600 deaths have been reported within days, weeks, or a few months of the COVID vaccine. 185,400 hospitalizations, 15,700 heart attacks, 
35,700 incidences of myocarditis. 60,700 people are permanently disabled as a consequence of the COVID vaccine. And everyone knows that VAERS is underreported by some say an increment of five, some say as much as 30. I don't know the exact number, but these numbers are underreported grossly. The rate of serious adverse events is probably around 8%. How'd I say that? Well, the VSAFE database put out by the CDC said there's about 8% of the folks that receive the vaccine report serious adverse events. That extrapolates to 30 million people in the United States having a serious adverse event. That means they have to seek out medical attention, emergency room, or a doctor visit. A poll fish survey of people in the United States in July of last year reported 8.6% of recipients having a serious adverse event. Rasmussen reported in December of last year, 7% of folks receiving the vaccine reported a serious adverse event. And then there was a poll of U.S. veterans. 8.5% receiving the Pfizer vaccine reported a serious event. 7.9% of those receiving the Moderna vaccine reported a serious event. Now, what causes these serious events? We are convinced that it's the spike protein Notably, the S1 segment is likely the major pathogenetic factor leading to post-vaccine syndrome. There are multiple different types of reactions. One is an immediate type 1 hypersensitivity reaction. Now, this is like, you know, people who receive penicillin, who've had penicillin previously, and they have an immediate anaphylactic shock. Their blood pressure drops, their heart rate goes up, they get hives and they pass out. That's a type one hypersensitivity reaction. You have to have been exposed to that medication previously in order to experience a type one hypersensitivity reaction. So folks who have this have been exposed to something within the vaccine previously, whether it's the lipid nanoparticle, whether it's the uh, messenger RNA component, whether it's the polyethylene glycol, there's something in the vaccine to which they've been previously exposed in order for them to have a type 1 hypersensitivity reaction. Number two, it's the immediate, I'm sorry, the acute myocarditis. Now, this is the sudden cardiac death that you're all hearing about. In the last uh, year and a half, there have been over 400 college and professional athletes that have died or collapsed on the playing field. Prior to the last year and a half, the incidence was about 25 per year. Now it's 25 per month of college age and professional athletes who are collapsing or dying on the playing field. And that skyrocketing incidence occurred simultaneously with the rollout of the COVID vaccine in April of 2020. What's happening there? The, the spike protein induces the adrenal gland to release catecholamines. The catecholamines, when these young athletes are exerting themselves, is inducing an arrhythmia. And these athletes are collapsing because of the arrhythmia or they're dying because of the arrhythmia. It's an acute myocarditis 
or an arrhythmia that's causing their death, and it's usually within 48 hours of receiving the vaccine. Then there's a subacute and chronic myocarditis. It's a spike protein-induced inflammation. That's within four to six months. We're going to talk more about that in a minute. And then uh, letter F, subacute days and chronic weeks to years vaccine-related injuries due to inflammation and autoantibodies or activation of the clotting cascade or viral reactivation. All of those are the things that we think that are going on in the human body. And then lastly, an inflammatory response mediated by spike protein. This is inducing mononuclear cell activation and it occurs primarily in the brain, the heart, the endocrine organs, or either the lining of the blood vessels. All right, what's the time course of sudden death? Before I go there, let me ask you a question, answer the question. Who exactly is experiencing all of these negative reactions to the vaccine? There's a specific phenotype, a specific type of person. Number one, there's a a genetic component. First degree relatives of patients who've had a severe reaction seem to be way more likely to also have a severe reaction. So there is a genetic component. Number two, it also depends on the mRNA load and the quantity of spike protein that's produced. What determines that? There's strong evidence that there are certain lots of the vaccine that are more potent than other lots of the vaccine. There are certain lots that produce more severe, serious, adverse events than other lots of the vaccine. So it depends on which lot that you get. Certain lots are more potent in inducing a reaction to the mRNA. Number two or three, it's sex. 80% of vaccine-injured patients are females. Women are known to be at much higher risk of autoimmune diseases, especially lupus, and this likely explains the finding. And then lastly, it's an underlying nutritional status and the existing comorbidities. We all know that patients that have high blood pressure, obesity, diabetes, and other pre-existing autoimmune disorders are way more likely to have issues with COVID or with the vaccine. So those are the folks that are way more likely to have post-vaccine syndrome. All right, now let's look at this slide. The time course of sudden death. The sudden death syndrome that we're talking about, two phases. One is in the first one to 14 days. And this is the one that's getting the most attention. These are mainly young, healthy, mostly males, mostly athletes. And within the first 48 hours to a week, these young, healthy, active males are on a ball field. They're working hard. And then suddenly they drop dead. And we believe the reason for that is the spike protein affects the adrenal gland causes excess catecholamines. The catecholamines are inducing an arrhythmia or a myocarditis, and that's what's inducing the sudden death. And then there's a second phase, and this is not being recognized in the media at all, but it's clearly there. 
In four to six months, there's a second phase of sudden death. After the last dose of the vaccine, these folks typically lack any symptoms of post-vaccine syndrome. They're not having the brain fog or the fatigue or the myalgia, but then suddenly they have an event and they die. Their sudden death is likely the result of progressive spike-induced endotheliolitis. That means the lining of the blood vessels is inflamed and, it's and it causes platelet aggregation and thrombosis. And the thrombosis is peculiar because it's full of the spike protein, amyloid, and fibrin. And if you've seen the uh, video Died Suddenly, that shows you pictures of that very unusual and peculiar thrombus that many of the uh, coroners and morticians are pulling from the blood vessels of their patients when they do autopsies. Thank you for listening to this edition of More Than Medicine. For more information about the Jackson Family Ministry, Dr. Jackson's books, or to schedule a speaking engagement, go to their Facebook page, Instagram, or their webpage at jacksonfamilyministry.com. This podcast is produced by Bob Sloan Audio Production at bobsloan.com.